Okay, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. As uh, Tim said at the beginning of the meeting, my name's Tom, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope. And today, we continue a series of messages which we're calling Surprised by God. Now, I wonder if you've ever wondered yourself what things on earth might actually cause ripples in heaven. Now, if you've, if you've never kind of come to church before, if you're kind of new to this and uh, maybe you don't believe in a God, maybe that's never come to your mind at all. Maybe you've never thought about that. But let just humor me for a moment. Humor me and, and let's do the opposite of what John Lennon says and let's imagine there is a heaven. Let's imagine that there is an eternity. Let's imagine that there is something beyond this life for the souls of men and women beyond death. And just imagine for a moment, is there anything that happens on earth that might in some way grab the attention of heaven? Maybe you think it might be world events or, or great achievements of mankind. Maybe you think it might be great tragedies that happen on earth that kind of grab the attention of heaven. You might think of, of the creation of Stonehenge or uh, the kind of first flight of a human in a plane. You might think of World War II or, or 9-11. You might think of Chelsea winning the Champions League for the second time in the space of only te about 10 years. Glorious moments in history is what you might want come to your mind. Well, in today's story that we're going to look at from the Bible, we learn the answer to that question. We learn the answer to what is it that happens on earth that causes ripples in eternity, that causes heaven to sit up and take notice. And as we unpack this message, we're going to see more, we're going to learn more about what God is like. As we continue this series of messages called Surprised by God, we're going to see that God is a God who rejoices, a God who parties. We're going to look at the story of two lost sons. You might have heard of the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. Well, we're going to see today that it's actually a story of two lost sons. And if you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to give you a Bible at the end of the service. But you can, you can follow along with the, with the verses on the screens. This shows us that there are two ways to be lost and only one way to be found. So we're going to pick up right at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. Now, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels 
when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. What an incredible story. It's probably the most famous of Jesus' stories. And as I said at the, at the beginning, it teaches us that there is two ways to be lost and only one way to be found. So we see that there's two audiences sitting around hearing Jesus teach. There's firstly, the first audience is, is the tax collectors and sinners. In my version, it says the notorious sinners. This is the first audience. These people, somehow, they are attracted to Jesus. Jesus isn't dumbing down his teaching. He is teaching hard-hitting truths, 
And yet he's so full of grace that people just want to be around him. They want to eat with him. They want to spend time with him. And so there's this, there's this one audience, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, when you hear the word tax collector, you kind of probably think of like a pantomime villain. Oh, he's taking more money than he should do, naughty tax collector. You know, that, he shouldn't be doing that. That's a bit cheeky. It's way more than that. You have to understand the Roman Empire spread from Britain right through to beyond Syria. This is an enormous empire. How on earth does an empire like that work? It's through taxation. That is how you keep an army going that can keep a massive empire like that, that can keep populations subdued. You have to tax people a lot. And these Roman soldiers, in some places they were good, respectable people, but in many, many places they would have raped and pillaged and just stolen whatever they wanted. And so tax collectors taking tax from ordinary people were upholding an oppressive empire. It's like people supporting the Taliban. And so tax collectors, understandably, are not liked at all. And there's not really any way for them to get out of the work that they're in. Because who's going to want to take on a tax collector after they've spent years of their lives taking from people in order to uphold an army that's bringing oppression to a nation? So they're, they're hated people. And then you've got the notorious sinners. These are people that, in other parts of the Bible, when it talks about notorious sinners, they're talking about prostitutes. People who, who sell their bodies, often to the Romans, in exchange for money. So this is one audience that are listening to Jesus. And the other audience is the Pharisees. These are the, the religious establishment. They're the religious elite. And they keep the law of God to the minute detail. Okay, some of you, you might have started a Bible reading plan once, and you get to Leviticus, and you think, I'm, I'm giving up here. Well, listen, the Pharisees, not only had they got through their Bible reading plan, they had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Like These guys knew, you could just ask them to quote you a verse, they'd give it to you. And they observed every feast, they observed every Sabbath, they did everything to the dot. So much so, that they loved the law so much that they even added their own laws as well. Just to show everyone they really had it together. That's the other audience that Jesus is addressing in this story. So not only are these, uh, these Pharisees, you know, in, in, in some people's eyes, perfect, they also hate the other group. They hate the tax collectors and the sinners. They, they, they see they're, they're not keeping our laws. They're not coming to our services. And the only reason they're hanging around with Jesus, in their view, is because Jesus must be watering down the message. Jesus must be lowering the bar. He must be telling them the things that they want to hear. Actually, the, the truth couldn't be, it couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus did not lower the bar. He preached a very straight down the line message. And yet they hate these people. They're looking down upon them with judgment. Now, there's two audiences for Jesus' story. And as we're going to see, these are represented in the story of the two lost sons. So firstly, you've got the younger brother. Some of you, even as I was sharing that story, you might have thought, I recognized myself in that. He demands his share of the estate. Now, this was a shocking moment. For Jesus' hearers, this would have been absolutely shocking. Because in those days, you didn't go up to a, a Middle Eastern patriarch and just demand some stuff. It, it was like he was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I, I don't want you for you, I want your stuff, is what he's saying to his dad. And in those days... The, the older brother would get a double portion of inheritance when the father died. So 
I've got, I'm one of two brothers. We're expecting inheritance this year. We're going to get half and half. In those days, the, the older brother, he got a double portion. So he gets two-thirds of the estate. The youngest son here is saying, I want my half and I want it now. This is a hugely disrespectful thing to say to a, to a Middle Eastern patriarch. Now, the listeners would have expected the dad here to give his son a big slap and cast him out and to never be seen again. And yet, in pain, the father agrees to divide up his estate and to give the younger son what he's asking for. And th there wasn't banks so much then. It was about selling land. That was where your wealth was. And so, in, in, the, in the Middle East and in Israel, the land was so important. It was God's promise to them. They were living in the good of his promise to them. So selling a bit of the promised land, that's a big deal. So in this story, the father is really through at great pain giving his son what he's asked for. Hugely disrespectful. And yet the father maintains his love and he, he bears the pain. And so off he goes. The son goes off. He parties hard. He heads to Magaluf. He's living the good life. He's drinking a lot. He's getting drunk every night. He's drunk on alcohol. He's drunk on the praises of people. Everyone knows his name. He is the party animal. He's bedding a lot of women. He is, the drinks are on him every night. He is, in his view, in that moment, he's having a good time. He's living life to the full in his view. And eventually the money runs out. And he starts to have to do really degrading work just to earn enough money to buy food. I can imagine the prostitutes looking on and thinking, I know what that's like. I'm, in, I'm having to do something so degrading in order to just to, to survive. And nothing was more humiliating for a wealthy Jewish boy than to work with pigs. Because Jewish people, Muslim people, they don't eat pork products. Pigs are filthy. And so for him to kind of be feeding pigs for his job is about as low as it gets. He is really in a very, very bad place. And we see here there's a moment when he comes around. He comes to himself, is what it might say in your version. He starts to consider the pig food as attractive. And that's when it just, he realizes it's all empty. Something that he'd been living for. Something that he'd been running headlong after. All of the pleasures that this world could offer, he realizes that it's all empty. Sometimes God allows us to, in his grace, allows us to exhaust ourselves and to see all of this is completely futile. Sometimes tragedy awakens us and we think, what was I doing with my life? Sometimes we just kind of get to the end and we think, what am I doing? All of this is just completely empty. So he comes to himself. That's the kind of literal translation, as it were. He comes to himself. He, he realizes some things about himself. Listen, when, you are, when you're alienated from God, when you're walking away from God, you're actually alienated from yourself. You're not able to really know who you are properly. You can't relate properly to yourself because you're running from the one who made you, who made you to know him. You were made by God. You're made for God. You're made to know him. You're made to know this God who created all things. And so when you're running from him, you don't even know yourself properly. You're alienated from yourself. So he, he kind of comes to himself and he realizes, I need to be back with my father. 
he realizes that that was where he was truly himself. But he feels he needs to make amends. Now, in those days, it, you know, forgiveness was one thing, but you had to work it off. There had to be restitution. There had to be some thing of, if I'm going to make this up, I need to now undo all of the bad that I've done. And so he starts to practice this speech, and I love that about this story, because we've all been there, haven't we? We've wronged someone in some way, and we think, I'm going to have to practice the speech now. I'm going to have to look in front of the mirror, and I'm going to have to start to say why I did what I did. And so he starts to walk home, and all the way, he's rehearsing this speech. He's rehearsing, how am I going to say sorry to Dad? How am I going to say, God, Dad, I'm going I'm to make it up to you. I'm going to work off. I'm going to be your servant. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just take me back as a servant. And yet, before he even gets a chance to do that, as he's within sight of the house, the dad sees him. Just a little note here. It is not common. In fact, it's very uncommon for a Middle Eastern wealthy patriarch to run at all. Servants run. Children run. The dad of the family doesn't run. And yet, in this story, the dad hoiks up his robe and starts running to his son. He runs to him, and just as the son's trying to get out his well-prepared speech, he smothers him in kisses. He hugs him tight. There are tears of joy flowing down the father's face. There's lots of snot. It's good snot. And he's giving this son a big hug, and the son's still trying to get this out. He's still trying to say, but dad, I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to make it up to you. And his dad says, let's throw a party. And he says, go and get the best robe in the house. The best robe in the house belonged to the dad. This was a sign not just of forgiveness, but of a restored position. He gets to wear his dad's robe. He gets his dad's robe at cost to his dad. At cost to his dad. His dad bears the pain. He bears all of that shame upon himself. And he says, come on, let's have a party. My son is home. And they kill the fattened calf. Now, we're kind of being encouraged, aren't we, to have less meat in our diets. We eat meat quite a lot. Back then, meat was a delicacy. This was something that they didn't have lots. And the fattened calf was a kind of once a year kind of thing, maybe even less than that. It was invite the whole neighborhood for a big party. This is the kind of party that the father throws. This is a beautiful picture. It's a glorious story. It's a beautiful picture of the love of God that covers even the most shameful of stories even the most selfish of choices. This is, the, this is a beautiful story of the God who is willing and ready to pounce. Not to pounce with kind of like judgment and to strike you down, but to pounce with his grace. And we heard in the testimonies, didn't we, of this fear of this God who at any moment is going to strike me down with an iron fist. This story shows us God is willing and ready to pounce. That the first sign of you turning back to him, he wants to pounce on you with his love. It's a great story, but it doesn't end there. I told you it's a story of two lost sons. Well, we see there's another son. There's the older brother. He refuses to go into the party. I mean, you have to be pretty messed up to refuse to go into the party, don't you? And he can't even bring himself to call his younger brother his brother. He says, this son of yours, he doesn't, want, he doesn't even want to acknowledge that this guy is his brother. This is a massive vote of no confidence in his father. He says, you've never even given me a goat. How dare you? How dare you kill the fattened calf? How dare you give him something good? 
this son of yours, he's just gone and squandered all of his money with prostitutes. And he starts appealing to his own record. Do you notice that? He starts to say, I've always obeyed. Never have I left you. He's basically saying, I've always obeyed, so I have rights. I have the right to demand things off you, Dad, because I've always done the right thing. I've never strayed like him. He's being hugely disrespectful to his dad. It's outrageous, actually. Who is this older brother in the story? It's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees. It's those guys who were pretty sure they had it all sewn up. They were pretty sure that if, if anyone in the world had earned the favor of God, it was them. If there was anyone in the world who, who God approved of, it was them. That's what they thought. Because they had done everything to the minute detail. But the older son in this story is just as lost as his little brother was. He's just as lost. Rebellion looks different. Some people do it with drugs and sex. Some people do it with Sunday school. Some people think, I've, I've never left. I've always attended. I've kept the rules. I've done what was expected of me. Even though I wanted to do other things, deep down, I've done what was expected of me. And therefore, God, you owe me some stuff. Therefore, I have rights. Therefore, you owe me a good life. You owe me an easy time. You owe me a family. You owe me wealth. Some people do it through, it's just, it shows really, they're just after God for his stuff, not for him himself. It looks very different, but he's equally as lost. Just as resentful of the father, the older brother rejects his father's authority. He wants to come out from under it. He wants to control his dad in some ways. How dare you do that? I have always stuck with you, and therefore you owe me some things. Both of these sons are lost. One's lostness has left him at the bottom of a pit, doing degrading work, completely helpless, starving, seen the emptiness of this world. The other is angry, self-important, judgmental of his brother, trying to keep control. There's two ways to be lost, friends. What does this story then teach us about God? Well, Jesus, he pictures God as a God who is itching to throw a party. He pictures God as a God who rejoices when someone who is lost comes back to him. And we see in this story that despite the disrespect from the older son, and his disrespect is outrageous, his father still appeals to him to come into the party. He urges him. Whether it's license, just doing what you want, when you want, or whether it's legalism, trying to keep all of the rules to the T, making sure that everyone knows you're keeping those rules as well. God still urges you to turn around and come into the party. We learn in this story that heaven stops and rejoices when one lost sinner turns away from all that they've been running headlong after and turns to God. We learn that there is something that makes heaven sit up and take notice. It's when lost people 
return to the Father and his embrace. He's poised to pounce with his grace. We've sung of God's grace this morning. This means his undeserved favor and kindness. He's poised to pounce. This is his, this is his, uh, this is his way for you today. You might think God is poised to strike me down because of the way I'm living. No, he's poised to pounce on you with love and grace if only you would turn to him today. That's his, his posture. Not wanting to come and strike you down, but he wants to come and embrace you and shower you and put upon you a robe of righteousness to cover your shame and your sin. This is his posture towards you today. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you can identify with the younger brother. Maybe you can think, I, I have, I've been there and done it and got the T-shirt. I've got numerous T-shirts, actually. And you think, I can't be forgiven. I was speaking with someone this week. He said, I don't think I can be forgiven for what I've done. And you probably think, I, I've gone too far. Jesus shows us in this story, even if you've kind of reached the bottom even if you've kind of exhausted all of the things in this life, you haven't gone too far. You can turn around and the Father is there. And he, he, he doesn't wait for us to grovel. He doesn't wait for us to beg. He doesn't wait for us to try and undo all of the things that we've done wrong. No, he's, he's waiting. To, he's running to you to, to embrace you. This is what we learn about God in this story. He's waiting for you to come. He wants you to enter into his joy. If you're, if you're identifying today with the younger brother, let me tell you that what you are looking for in life, what you are looking for in life is the joy of your creator. You're, you're, you're looking for his joy. You're looking to know him as your father. That is really what you're looking for. And you may think, no, I'm not. <laughs> you are. That's what you're looking for. That's, that's what you're really pursuing. All of the things in this life that you think you're pursuing, you're really reaching for the joy of knowing God. There are all kinds of things in this world that, that offer to give you that, but never really quite keep their promise. And the famous writer C.S. Lewis puts it like this, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or we first think of some foreign country, or, for, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can truly satisfy. He says, I'm not speaking of unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. And there's three ways of dealing with this, C.S. Lewis says. He says the first is to go on searching. Well, that marriage didn't satisfy in the way I'd hoped, so I'm going to end that one and I'm going to get a new one. And this new one's really going to satisfy. That job, yeah, I thought it was going to be the job that I was going to wake up every day and just jump out of bed for. I couldn't wait to go to work. Didn't work out that way, but there's going to be another one. I've just seen this job, and that's going to be the job that's going to satisfy. That holiday... Yeah, it was, it was marred a little bit. You know, it wasn't, it, didn't, it wasn't quite long enough. I wish I had another week or two weeks. But this holiday, this traveling that I'm going to do, then I'm going to be satisfied. 
or this friendship group. I'm not really kind of feeling the love from these people, but these other guys I've just met, when I have their praise, when, I, when I'm in with them, then I'm really going gonna, gonna to feel the love. I'm going to be satisfied. So we might go after other things for satisfaction. But the other option is that we just kind of give up. We learn to repress that part of ourselves that longed for soul satisfaction, and we become miserable, and we become superior towards others, thinking, naive, they think they're going to find satisfaction in this life? It's misery. That's all you're ever going to get. It's always going to be disappointment. That's the second option. Maybe you're in that place, and you might think, yeah, I've kind of given up trying. Well, there's the third way, which is the Christian way. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you, found, if you keep finding none of these things satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy you. They were only there to arouse you as to the real thing. Knowing the joy of the Father. Knowing his embrace. Knowing him for who he is. And this can be yours. Even if you think, I, I think I've done too much wrong. I've gone too far. This can be yours. You can be forgiven. You can be welcomed home. You can, this can be yours today. All because we actually have a perfect older brother. The older brother in this story, he's a nasty piece of work, isn't he? We, the Bible tells us, have an older brother that is perfect in every way. We've got a brother called Jesus. And he, he came into the world so that we might be completely forgiven. He came into the world that he might take upon himself our shame and all of the degrading things we've done so that we could be clothed with his robe of righteousness, so that a robe could be put on us that we might know complete forgiveness. He was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought right in. He, he drank the cup of God's eternal justice when he died on the cross. God's eternal justice towards our wrongdoing, he drank that. He took that. There's no restitution. There's no trying to work your way back. There's no, if I just do these things, then surely God will accept me. God won't have that. He won't have that. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity, friends. I'm going to try and outweigh all of the things that I've done wrong. That is not Christianity. Christianity is trusting in Jesus who did it for you and wholly trusting in him. And the Christian life is a life of wow. It's a life of wow, he's done this for me. He, has, he died on, on the cross in my place. He did it for me. And now I want to just, as we heard from Bianca, I want to serve this God. I want to I live for him. It's a life of wow, I was so far and I would, I'd done so much wrong and God has brought me in. And it was, again, I didn't deserve it. I was ill-deserving of it. I deserve the opposite. God has brought me in. It's a life living from a place of, wow, that's Christianity. It's not, I've got to try and make up some things now. It's not a, if I get a foot wrong now, God's going to strike me down. No, it's living from a place of, wow, 
He's done this. We live from a place of knowing the Father's joy over us. Not just in our joy in turning away and coming back to him, but his joy over us every single day. It says in the Bible that he rejoices over us with loud singing. I mean, some of you dads out there, you sing in the shower and it's just embarrassing. You just love it though, because you, no, you know, you, no one else can hear you. You can be heard. God, God rejoices over you with loud singing. Can you just take that in for a moment? He rejoices over you to, to the extent that he sings over you loudly. He, I know a small part of what that's like as a dad. Sometimes we're just doing something as a family. We might even just be traveling in the car, and I'm just looking at my children in the rearview mirror. And I just think, wow, I love them. I'm, I'm just, just, I just drink it in for a moment. How can I? Wow, these, these children, I love them so much. Sometimes they might just say something that just makes me smile. I think, they're so funny. I love them. I know a small part of that. Your heavenly Father rejoices over you with loud singing. And Christianity is, is living from a place of knowing that joy. It's living from a place of having received the Father's embrace. He is willing you home today. If you don't know him, he's willing you home into his embrace today. He wants to proclaim over you today, this my son was dead, but he's now alive. This my son was lost, but he's now found. That's what he wants to proclaim over you today, and you can turn to him today. I want to give a moment of opportunity, just in a couple of minutes, for you to do that. You can go on trying to search the world. You can. You can go from this place and think, that was a nice service. Those Christians are a bit enthusiastic. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. I'm going to keep looking elsewhere. You can go on trying to search the world. You can go on that new job, that house. Once I have that house, wow, it's going to be beautiful. We're going to have a cozy Christmas. Once I have that holiday experience, then I'm not going to be stressed any longer. All of the cares of the world are just going to melt away. You can go after it. You can go after it. You can go after it. You're going to find ultimately, if you place your hope in that, it's empty. You can know the Father's embrace today. That brings life in all its fullness. It's not an easy life, but it's life in all its fullness. You can know that today, friends. If you keep searching, you'll find that you're always traveling and never arriving. You're not going to reach that destination until you stop your pursuit of all those things and turn back to the Father. I wonder if we could stand together. We're going to sing in just a moment. The band maybe want to come and be ready to do that. Maybe you're in a position right now, you think, I, I need to respond to this. I can't go away from this place without having responded. There might be a moment right now where you say, I'm coming home. I'm turning away. I'm turning around and I'm coming home. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for what this story teaches us about you. We thank you that you're a God who rejoices. You're a God who is itching to throw a party. That you're wanting to lavish your love upon us. 
that you're going to lavish good things upon us. And Lord, wherever people are at today, whether feeling like that younger brother who's just run and run and run, or whether people have felt, maybe I kind of made it, maybe I've done enough to earn God's love. I pray that right now there'd be a turning and a turning back to you. And would you come, Lord, as they do that? And by, just by your presence amongst us, would it be that they know your embrace? Just whilst we've all just engaging with God in different ways, why don't you just under your breath, or even out loud if you want to, just say, God, I'm coming home. I'm returning to you. Why don't you say that to him now? Maybe you think, I've got to start to recite all the things I'm going to do to try and make it up to him. No, no, no. Receive his grace. See Jesus who's done it for you. Jesus who on that cross said, it is finished. Who lived the perfect life, full of grace and truth. See him there in your place. Lord God, would it be that lives are transformed? Would it be that in the weeks to come we are baptizing more people because more people have come to see you for who you are and to see that you alone bring life in its fullness? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.